Would you open God's Word this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 1. We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 17. Romans, chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. Here is God's Word for us this morning as we are embarking on this new series of messages from the book of Romans. Romans 1, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank God, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I, am, I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the proclamation of his word in our hearts as we hear. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we give you praise and thanks for revealing your word to us and this precious book that you have written to the church of Rome centuries ago, that you have also preserved it for our faith today. I pray that you would enable me by your spirit to proclaim this word with clarity and faithfulness. And I pray that by your spirit you would speak to our hearts, you would open our hearts that we may hear and obey you by faith in Jesus. In the name of Christ we pray. 
Amen. As we look into the first passage of the book of Romans, as we look at the introduction of this book, you may be surprised to notice that the introduction of the book of Romans and the greetings that Paul gives in this letter are the longest greeting that he has written in any of the letters that we have from him in the New Testament. And, and perhaps why, we may wonder why would Paul write such a long greeting uh, to this church. Perhaps it was because they did not know him. They have not met him personally. They have perhaps heard about him, uh, about his ministry, but have never interacted with him. But part of what makes this greeting so long is not only that Paul has not known the Church of Rome personally, but he gets to speak right from the very first verse about the theme of this whole letter, which is the gospel. Paul, from the very beginning of this letter, from the, from the moment he wants to greet them, he actually gets to speak about the gospel. Verses 2, 3, and 4 provide a summary of what the gospel that he came to proclaim, what that is. But in this introduction and greeting, Paul not only introduces us to the gospel, but he tells the church of Rome why they must pay attention to this gospel. So here Paul introduces himself, Paul introduces the gospel, and Paul wants to introduce them to the why they must pay attention to this gospel and to this letter that he's about to, re, uh, to write to them. What, what would help the church in Rome to lean into this message that Paul is about to write to them? Why would they be interested in it? Why should they pay careful attention to it? This is what Paul is aiming to do in this greeting and introduction to this letter in the passage that we have just read. This is the main argument that Paul is making to the church of Rome through this introductory text. Why should we lean into the book of Romans? And this text has three parts to it. And each of these parts could really be a reason why the Church of Rome should pay attention to this book and why we should also pay attention to it. Three reasons from this introduction why we should pay attention to the book of Romans. And these reasons could be summarized in the following phrases. A divine calling, a personal longing, and an unashamed confidence. Let me say that again. A divine calling, a personal longing, and an unashamed confidence. Each of these phrases or, or themes of this passage center around the gospel. Uh, they are all here, and Paul is developing them all centered around the gospel. So I might give a, a longer uh, summary of this passage by longer statements. And the statement, statements would be, through the gospel, 
God issued a divine calling. A second statement would be, because of the gospel, there is a personal longing. And a third statement would be, in the gospel, there is an unashamed confidence. So let's work through these three summaries, through these reasons why we should pay attention to the book of Romans. Through the gospel, God issued a divine calling. In the first seven verses of the passage we've read, the first part of the text, we see the language of calling three times. And the first time it describes Paul's own ministry as an apostle. And this would make sense. Paul is introducing himself and the ministry that God gave him as an apostle. And he tells us that he received his apostleship through Jesus. Through Jesus, Paul received the call to be an apostle for the sake of the gospel. When God chose to reveal his gospel to us, to his people, the Jews, and to the Gentiles, God chose not a marketing company to develop a marketing strategy, how to spread the news throughout the earth. What God chose were certain men to fulfill a specific office, the office of apostle, who would go out as his authorized messengers to deliver and reveal the, the details of the news of the gospel exactly as God intended that gospel to be proclaimed. And Paul tells us that one of the men appointed to this office of, of apostleship, of being an apostle, was he himself. This is how Paul describes himself in this introductory section of the book of Romans. One of the apostles. And he brings up the apostleship that he received twice in this passage. I wonder if you saw it in verse 1, called to be an apostle. And then he shows up again in verse 5. When in verse 5, Paul tells us that his apostleship came through Jesus Christ. Now, by the time we get to, to verse 5, Paul has already told us about somebody else. Not just about himself. He has already told us about Jesus Christ. He already told us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who became a man, who took on himself human flesh, being descended from the royal family of David, and yet after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, proving that he is the Son of God, attested by the Spirit of holiness through the resurrection from the dead. Now, it's surprising that in a letter, in an introduction that's aimed to present and introduce the author, Paul, actually Paul spends more time speaking and introducing somebody else, and that's Jesus. Paul wants 
to speak about his apostleship by actually tying his apostleship to the one who sent him. So in introducing and explaining to them, hey, I'm an apostle, Paul is actually first introducing who is the one who sent him to them and introduces them, Jesus. So by the time we get to verse 5, where Paul speaks to them about who it is that sent him, Paul is, has already told them, the one who sent me is the Jesus who conquered death. He is the one who sent me to you as an apostle. Uh, the one who made the gospel possible through being proclaimed through apostles is Jesus Christ. The one who would prove to be the Son of God and the greatest physical proof of that is his resurrection. Well, friends, the office of an apostle in the New Testament is an office of incredibly high authority because the one who called the apostles is the very one who was resurrected from the dead. So when we see Paul speaking about the gospel and about his apostleship, he's saying, this gospel that I'm about to proclaim to you is not my invention. I'm simply the divinely called messenger appointed by Christ to deliver you this gospel. Yes, I'm sent to be an apostle, but let me tell you who sent me. That's a big deal. The resurrected Jesus. Friends, in the words of, of the Apostle Paul, we get the words of the resurrected Christ. Through this letter to the Romans, we encounter the very word of God. Yet before Paul speaks of his authority as an apostle for the sake of the gospel, he actually gives us another description of himself. And I wonder if you picked it, if you noticed it. The very first description, even before he describes himself as an apostle, is the title or the role of servant. A servant of Jesus Christ. The word servant could also be described as slave. But it's interesting and, and intriguing why, before Paul would describe himself in this role of high authority, an apostle commissioned by Jesus, that he would actually describe himself as a servant. But he wants to tell us that before he is viewed as a man with authority in the office that he has as an apostle, he tells us he, he himself is a man under authority. He's a servant. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. This is how the whole letter begins. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Friends, Paul does not present his credentials, even as an apostle, in a tone of boastfulness, but in a tone of a servant. And yet, just because he's a servant does not mean that we should treat his message lightly, as if it's given just by a, a waiter at a restaurant, just by a servant 
carrying out some menial job. Oh no, this servant is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So why must we pay attention to Romans? Paul combines these two descriptions at the very beginning of himself. Two descriptions that would seem to be opposites. On one side, a high authority, the authority of an apostle. On the other side, the role of a servant. Yet both of these descriptions are defining for us and for the initial audience for the Church of Rome who Paul was. A man divinely called by God to serve Jesus Christ and to fulfill the office of an apostle who would be speaking the official authorized good news that was issued by King Jesus. Friends, if, if you're not a Christian and wonder why should we and why do we Christians care so much about the Bible? A book that seems to be written by men from 2,000 plus years ago. The answer to that question is because God chose men to whom he revealed his message and he authorized them and charged them to make that revelation written decreed, saved up, and transmitted so that we may get to hear the authorized version, the authorized message as the king of the universe and the creator of the world has come to decree it for us. Yes, God chose men through whom he would speak openly, clearly, and authoritatively a word for us today. Friends, this news from God comes through his apostles, through his servants. Don't dismiss the Bible or the book of Romans as simply another book, like any other book. But notice for what purpose God chose Paul to be an apostle. Why authorize men like Paul to fulfill this office of, of apostle. Notice in verse 5, there is a, there's an aim stated for the office of, of the apostles. He says, Paul says, after again, after introducing himself and introducing Jesus, he says in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. This is why Paul was called by God to be an apostle, to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul's apostleship was not aimed merely to pass on information about the gospel. The aim of Paul's ministry, the aim of the apostles, the aim of spreading the gospel was to bring about the obedience of faith. What an intriguing phrase. What is this obedience of faith? There are a number of ways to interpret this phrase, uh, but two of them are perhaps stand out as the most plausible uh, understandings or definitions of this phrase, the obedience of faith. 
One way to understand this phrase is to understand it as the obedience that comes from faith. In other words, the faith in the gospel produces an obedience. And, that, and Paul is interested not merely to get people to believe in Jesus, but also to, to obey Jesus. This is how the NIV translates this phrase. If you are using the NIV, they would interpret this phrase, the obedience of faith, literally this way, the obedience that comes from faith. If this is how Paul intended the phrase, then the focus of the gospel preaching is to bring about that radical change of orientation and transformation in us, in God's people, that their obedience would no longer be based on the law, but that their obedience would be based on the faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first way to understand the, the meaning of the phrase, the obedience of faith, the, the obedience that comes from faith. Another way to understand this phrase is to interpret it and see it as faith is the obedience. In other words, the obedience consists in the act of trusting in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus is an act of obedience. Uh, John Calvin said on this verse, faith is properly that by which we obey the gospel. Faith is properly that by which we obey the gospel. Now in verse 9, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 8, Paul praised the church of Rome for their faith that is being spread throughout all the earth. See that in verse 8? First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. If we go to the end of the book, to chapter 16, verse 19, Paul speaks about something else that is being known by the whole world. And that is their obedience. So in this letter, Paul seems to equate their faith with their obedience. And he does that elsewhere in this book. For example, in Romans 10, 16, Paul says, he, sa he, he describes the response that people are supposed to have to the gospel. And he says in verse 16 of chapter 10, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Do you see how Paul uses the language of faith or believing and the language of obedience interchangeably? As if actually the two are speaking about, the two terms are speaking about the same reality. And I'm convinced in light of this, that when Paul uses the phrase, the obedience of faith, what he is referring to is this second meaning of the definition of, or of the phrase, which means the obedience consists in trusting in Jesus. This means that the gospel message, when we give it out, when Paul wants to spread it, it's not merely an invitation and an offer. 
It's a command. It's a command. It's not simply something that you can just take it or leave it. And it doesn't matter what you do with it. Oh, the gospel message is a command issued by the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is a command that we should not ignore his son Jesus who died for the sins of all those who would trust and repent in Jesus. Oh, friends, this means that there is no obedience to God apart from placing one's faith in Jesus. This, this is a huge deal for the Jews who would want to obey God apart from Christ. There is no obedience to God apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us as early as verse 2 that this gospel, which must be obeyed, was actually promised beforehand by the prophets in the Old Testament. And then verse 17, he will tell us one of the particular specific verses from the Old Testament in which the demand for faith was already part of the Old Testament requirement. Friends, a response to the gospel is not merely an option for us. It is a command from God. And therefore, it should be considered an act of obedience. And when we give the gospel, we should not merely present it as an information and then sort of leave it as an option, leave it or take it. But we should present it with the earnestness that we are calling people to respond to the king of kings who issued a decree, a command for people to return to him. That would put a little more earnestness in our gospel sharing. We are sent out to make known the command of the king. But also, if we understand that the obedience of faith refers to faith as something that we are commanded to respond to, do you also see obedience to God as a part of your faith in God? Do you see your faith in Jesus as an act of obedience to God? It's not simply a mental assent. Now, again, true faith, saving faith, produces in us an obedience to God. But here in Romans, Paul defines faith in Jesus as an act of obedience to God. So, beloved Christian, when you share the gospel with others... Do you include the, with earnestness this need for people to respond as an act of obedience to God, to put their faith in Jesus? Notice also that the act of obedience of faith is for all the nations. This is such a contrast to the Jews. The Jewish people understood the call to obedience in the Old Testament to be given primarily to them who received the law. But here in the gospel, we get to hear about another obedience. An obedience that is centered around faith in Jesus. An obedience that is certainly coming out of faith in Jesus, but it really has as its object 
trusting in Jesus. And this obedience is for all the nations. Friends, this is why last week we commissioned Ruth to go to the mission field, to the Middle East, and to do so long term. This is why she sacrifices her life and her career to give her entire life for making the gospel known in the Muslim world. This is why we supported Amy a few weeks ago to go for a short season to Southeast Asia. And she's still on the mission field for just another week or two. This is why we support other ministry partners in other parts of the world, like Titus Akim in Romania. We want our resources to support the spread of this gospel among the nations of the earth, so that the nations of the earth would come to obey Jesus by putting their faith in him. Friends, don't be afraid of identifying and seeing faith in Jesus as an act of obedience. And don't be afraid and, and to recognize that faith in Jesus also ushers in and produces a new obedience to us as well. The, Paul of, the call of Paul as an apostle was to bring about this obedience of faith among the nations. That was Paul's call, a divine calling as an apostle. But, but that's not the only call that we see in this introductory passage of Romans. Paul speaks not only about his divine calling, he also speaks about the calling that God has given to the very people he's writing to. Look at verse 6. Including you who are called. Called to what? Called to belong to Jesus. Oh, what a beautiful and amazing reality that through the declaration of the gospel, through embracing Jesus by faith, through hearing this decree from the king of the universe, he is actually giving a call to all those who hear this message so they could belong to Jesus as well. This phrase, called to belong to Jesus Christ, other Bible translations interpret this phrase, called by Jesus. In the Greek language, you could interpret these phrases in a number of ways. Either called to belong to Jesus or called by Jesus. Both would be equally plausible translations. The point is, the same Jesus who called Paul to be an apostle is the same who is issuing a call to all those who hear the gospel to belong to him. And notice that the call picks up again, is, is picked up again in verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. What was the calling that God gave them, the people of the church of Rome? It was not only to belong to Jesus, but also they were called to be saints. Saints are not only the people who are painted on church walls. Saints are not merely the heroes of the faith who lived amazing lives in the history of the church. Saints are all the members of the church of Rome to whom Paul is writing. And my dear friends, 
saints, called to be saints, is every one of you who belong to Jesus Christ and to his body. We are called saints. Now, our people, our culture today doesn't look at the word saint very positively. Even, even Christians are a little bit reluctant to use the word Saint Paul, Saint Mary Catherine, Saint Colin. Oh, I'm not that. And yet, this passage makes it very clear. The calling God gives us in the gospel is not merely to belong to Jesus, but he gives us a call to be saints. Don't be reluctant about that which God has called you to. Don't be reluctant or ashamed of that which God has called you to be. Our culture says that to love someone, you just need to let them be the way they are. Right? If you loved me, you'd accept the way I am. Friends, that is not how God loved us. In this passage, in this introduction, to describe to the Romans who Paul thinks they are, he says to those, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Well, friends, it's true that God's love is unconditional. He does not love us on the condition of whether or not we are first saints. But he loves us so that we would become saints. That's why he gave his son for us. Oh, friends, this is the, the, the trajectory of God's love for us, that those whom he loves, he would sanctify. He would set apart for himself so that he would call them to be saints. So my brothers and sisters, don't be afraid or reluctant or ashamed to be called saints. If God calls you to be so, don't put that label in the closet. This is why we must pay attention to the book of Romans. Because there's a divine calling. A divine calling that was issued through the gospel to Paul to be an apostle, to make this gospel known, to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. And through this gospel, God is calling you and I to himself, to belong to him, and to be called saints, because God loved us. A second reason why we should pay attention to the book of Romans is because there's a personal longing. We see this in the second part of this introduction, in verses 8 through 15. There's, because of the gospel, there is a personal longing. Now, Part two and part three of the message are a little shorter, so don't, don't fret. In the second section of the introduction, Paul describes his longing to visit the church of Rome. These verses, verses 8 through 15, are filled with this language of longing. He longs to see them because their faith is being proclaimed in all the world. Amazing. It's not only the gospel that is being proclaimed in all the world, but 
the faith of the church of Rome is being known. He wants to see that community and to see their faith in person. How amazing that the church of Rome was known, not because of their big numbers, not because of their amazing sanctuary, not because of their amazing, well-known pastors. No, they were being known in the world because of their faith. Oh, how I long for us to grow and have the kind of faith that would be known of and about in other parts of the world. Friends, when we live our lives together as a congregation in faith, loving God and loving one another because of faith, the people we support get to hear and benefit that of that. Missionaries, whether when we talk to them or when they come and visit and they are encouraged by the faith that is among us and when they go back, they talk about what they've seen in their sending church. That's a means of how we can encourage others by the kind of faith that is happening among us. But Paul's longing is to finally get to visit and be physically in this church where he has heard so much about their faith in the Lord. Verses 10 to 13, the language of longing and planning to come shows up several times. Paul's aim was that through his visit, he would not only be able to see their faith, but he would be able to strengthen them. And that they would be a means of encouragement to him as well. Friends, it's amazing that in this letter, Paul expects the encouragement to be mutual. He longed to see them, to strengthen them, but he also longed for the mutual encouragement to happen both ways. I love how John Stott put it beautifully. Although Paul is an apostle, he's not too proud to acknowledge his need of encouragement. And this is the aim of every Christian fellowship. To be willing to give yourself for the strengthening of others and to humble yourself enough to recognize that you need to be strengthened by others as well. This is the ministry of presence. I call it the ministry of presence. The ministry of fellowship. Of just showing up. Being presently with people. So that the interactions that happen among believers may be a mutual encouragement. Oh, friends, even when the Apostle Paul was prevented from being able to, to visit the Church of Rome, we see here that he was longing, he was desiring, he was praying that God would open up a door so he would be with them finally. Oh, friends, even when we are prevented from being able to be present with one another. And I realize that in a post-COVID world, there's still some who are not yet with us fully. They're still on live stream. They're not physically with us. And, and some have developed illnesses and life stages in their physical bodies that it's hard for them to be physically here. We certainly want to understand those legitimate reasons. But is there a longing to be present? Is there 
are our prayers filled with, Lord, help me to get back. Or, or, or help those who are not yet back with us. Help them to long to be present with us. There is a, a prayer, a longing to be with God's people. Why? Because there is mutual encouragement and growth and edification when we are with one another. And Paul says that he's under obligation to preach the gospel in verse 14. But this obligation to preach the gospel, even to the people of Rome, does not mean that he should do it out of duty alone. Yes, Paul, as an apostle, was under obligation to preach the gospel among all the Gentiles. Barbarians, Greeks, wise, foolish, everybody. But even though there was an obligation to do it, what stands out in this passage is not the obligation, but the longing, the desire. And this tells us how in Scripture, just because something is commanded and a duty does not mean that it should be done heartless as a mere duty. Same way as we are commanded by Scripture not to forsake our gathering together. We are commanded to gather regularly. But it should not be merely a duty. It should be a longing. It should be a delight. Our culture sometimes puts a wedge between duty and delight. But with the Apostle Paul, duty to proclaim the gospel and to be with God's people fuels his longing to visit them and to be with them. It's not an either or. So take the same for us. Even though our circumstances are not exactly the same as Paul was in, we're not apostles as Paul was. We're not trying to raise support from the church of Rome as Paul was trying to. But nevertheless, because of the gospel, there is a, a longing to be present with one another share the gospel with each other, to strengthen each other's faith, to grow in the gospel and in the word of God together. This is what Paul hoped to accomplish in Rome. And just because it was a duty, it did not mean that it did not have to be a delight. Oh, friends, even a church that is already mature in faith, even a church who already is known for its faith, is not off the hook in needing ongoing encouragement and strengthening in the faith. It may have been easy for Paul to say, I don't need to go to the church of Rome. They are already so mature in faith. Their faith is known in all the world. I don't need to go to them. They don't need me. And yet he says, I want to come to you to strengthen you in the faith. Oh, friends, may the Lord help us not to plateau and feel like we have arrived at a status of our growth in faith, that we can neglect our ongoing need for strengthening and encouragement with one another in the faith. Christian, be cautious of not feeling that in your maturity in the faith, you have arrived at such a high level that you feel like you just don't need to worry about gathering with God's people that often. Paul longed for the physical presence with this mature faith, mature in faith church, because he knew that they still needed to be strengthened by him and for that strengthening to be mutual. Because of the gospel, 
there's a personal longing to be present. And I wonder, I wonder if your heart has that same personal longing because of the gospel. A final reason why we should listen and pay attention to Romans. It's not only because of the divine calling. It's not only because of the personal longing. But finally, because there's an unashamed confidence. There's an unashamed confidence. In the gospel, there is an unashamed confidence. Look at verses 16 and 17. The fat last portion of our text. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Even though these verses are the ending of the introduction of this letter, they also function as the thesis of the entire book. So much so that one Bible teacher said that actually in these verses, 16 and 17, we see the summary of the book and then he'll take the whole, the rest of the book of Romans to unpack these two verses. This is why we must pay attention to the book of Romans. The gospel revealed through this book is a message we should not be ashamed of. What a surprising comment from Paul to say this. Why did he say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Why would he need to bring up the issue of shame when thinking about the gospel? Well, perhaps because in the Roman world, uh, preaching a message about salvation through a Messiah, through a Savior who was crucified, was folly, was, was being out of your mind. Nobody dared to preach such a message with, with hope and conviction. It truly was a message of shame. Perhaps that's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed because the content of what I'm proclaiming would naturally bring shame. Surprisingly, not much has changed today. Even though the message of a crucified Messiah uh, is no longer a symbol of shame, today it's not unpopular to have a, a necklace of a cross or the sign of a cross put on artifacts. But when we think about the proclamation of the gospel, today the notion of the struggle with shame is still among us in various ways. Whether it's, uh, it's matters of feeling like I'm under obligation or I'm eager or I am not ashamed, these are hard for us to actually live out. Why is Paul under obligation and eager and unashamed? And why is it that oftentimes we feel like we don't have an obligation? Instead of eagerness, there's reluctance. And instead of unashamedness, there's fear. We would rather prefer to keep the gospel low-key, which is another way of saying I'm ashamed of it. 
What helped Paul to find the obstacles of preaching Christ without shame? Preaching him eagerly. These verses give us two reasons. Let me mention them briefly. In verse 16, he was not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is a power of God for salvation. Look at verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why be ashamed of that which is powerful? Why be ashamed of that which brings salvation to everyone who believes? Friends, let me ask you, are you ashamed of the gospel? Some of us have a hard time preaching the gospel because we are not comfortable to know how to summarize it. Like, I don't know where to start. I don't know what I would say. That's how some of us feel. Well, friends, if the power, if, if the gospel is the power of God for salvation, if it is the power of God, why not brush up on your gospel speaking? Why not practice it? Have you considered meeting up with another member of this church who will not look at you funny or give you a hard time? Why not just meet up for coffee and say, hey, could we meet up and brush up on how we would speak the gospel? If the gospel is the power of God, do you think it would be worth your time to brush up on it so you could have it ready and know what to say? You don't have to just do it only with non-believers. Brush up on it. Get confident in it. Study it, read upon it, how to say it, how to practice it. If it's a power of God, why not spend the time so you feel comfortable with it, so you're not stuttering it? And if it's the power of God for salvation, it's not just power of God, it's a power for salvation. Do you think that the salvation of those souls is worth your time to brush up on it? What excuse do you and I have to feel like, I just don't know what to say? I don't know how I would say it. Friends, this is why we are church, to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, that we should have no reasons to feel like we are giving the ah answer in asking the question, what is the gospel? Oh, friends, if the gospel is the power of God for salvation, let me ask you, is it worth it for you, your time, to get good and comfortable at saying it, at talking about it? A second reason why Paul says here's why he's not ashamed of the gospel. He says in verse 17, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here Paul gives finally the first Old Testament evidence, as he said in verse 2, that the gospel was already foreordained and foreshadowed, proclaimed ahead of time by the prophets. He's giving us already an evidence from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. 
But for Paul, this is the reason why he believes the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And this is why he's not ashamed of the gospel. Because in it, in the message of this news, the righteousness of God is revealed. Oh, friends, if it is revealed in such a way that it fulfills an Old Testament promise, that it is that people are now to live no longer by the obedience of the Old Testament law, but they are to live by faith in Jesus. Friends, this gospel is worth getting good at knowing how to proclaim it so that we don't stumble over and stutter and confuse the righteousness of God with our own righteousness. Why be ashamed of a gospel that reveals the righteousness of God for those who believe? Friends, it's worth getting good, brushing up, being, getting, becoming eager, praying that God would give you the earnestness, the eagerness to make this gospel known. For our purpose, these are two reasons why tell, Paul tells us why he's not ashamed to have confidence in the gospel. How is your confidence in the gospel? Is it characterized by reluctance or shame or some sort of fear? I pray that in this book, as we begin studying this book of Romans, that we would grow in an unashamed confidence in the gospel. So why pay attention to Romans? Because through the gospel, God issued a divine calling. And because of the gospel, there's a personal longing. And because in the gospel, there is an unashamed confidence. I pray these reasons would stir your heart to be eager to get into this book. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for revealing your word to us in such clear and authoritative ways. Oh, Lord, help us to hear your word, not merely as an Evite, but as a command from you to respond by faith in the Lord Jesus and enable us, your people, to grow in longing for one another, in, to be in fellowship, to grow in this faith, and to proclaim it without shame. Father, we pray that you would draw people to yourself today. And if there's anyone among us this morning who has not yet responded by faith, who has not yet obeyed the call of the gospel to respond to the, to the call of Jesus, I pray that you would work in hearts today to bring about the obedience of faith. We pray all this, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen.